Hey guys, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning into Theology-ish. Before we jump in, I just want to emphasize that the discussions on this podcast are exploratory in nature and delve into a variety of theological perspectives. They do not strictly represent or define our personal stances on the faith nor the doctrine of our affiliated churches. We encourage listeners to reflect, question, and seek guidance from their local church leaders. Our goal is to foster understanding and curiosity. We ask that you listen with a humble and discerning mind. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theology-ish. My name is Ryan, and I am joined, as always, by our co-host, William. What's good, my dude? Uh, my coffee's pretty good. Good. Yeah. The, the Lord is good, y- Ryan. Yeah, that too. God is good. But I can tell you were not raised in the Church of God or Assemblies of God. No. Because if you were, when I say God is good, you would respond all the time. All the time. And then I would say all the time. God is good. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's so, like a secret handshake that people from those uh, more Pentecostal traditions so, do. It's great. At our weekly small group, I'm a part of uh, just this past week. We were we're going through the fruits of the spirit, and we were talking about uh, goodness, and uh, we were talking about how there's there's a distinction between goodness and kindness, which are both fruits of the spirit, uh, or Fruit of the Spirit, singular. Yeah, I, I was going to point that fruit out. It's of the Spirit. Fruit. Yes. One. But uh, we we were getting into the Greek word for goodness and how that is translated. Agathos. And, and how that ought to be interpreted, and we were getting into it a little bit. And uh, what we, we kind of landed on a little bit was uh, all good things come from God. Mm-hmm. And God is good. But, you know, when you're... When you're uh, saying, ah, that that pizza sure was really good, maybe maybe the better term might not be good because good good has a heavier implication than than most people might give it in this in the biblical sense. And uh, we were we were getting into some similes and some similar words and whatnot. And uh, what we came across is that maybe the word righteous might be the better choice. In the modern English way that we interpret righteous, anyway, and uh, we f- we found it pretty funny. One of the one of the things I came across when I was looking up the word righteous and how you interpret that was, uh, you know, how like Google when you look up a word will give you a little like example sentence with yeah, that word. Yeah. The one I got for righteous was righteous bread pudding, man. <laughs> So maybe you shouldn't be telling people their food is good. You should be telling it it's righteous. Um, I, their food's righteous. I think that uh, both of those are theologically weighty. Mm. And I think that for the sake of being clear and making sure that our thoughts are not sloppy, it would be better to call food uh, delicious. Mm. If food is is quote-unquote good or a righteous bread pudding, you're better off describing it with what you actually mean, which is that this tastes pleasant. 
Well, say that bread pudding is Call gross anyway. So. I like a good bread pudding. I don't care I, for it. it. Like especially if it's uh, been in the oven at just the right temperature and you start getting a little bit of caramelization around it. You one of those uh, raisins in your bread pudding? No, 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 no. Miss me with raisins. Just okay. Generally, miss me with that. I like raisins. I think raisins are pretty good. I like raisin bran. I'm one of those weird people. So I, I'm, I'm actually gonna amend what I said with miss me with raisins. Sometimes. I get on like a raisin kick. Yeah. Where I want raisins. Mm-hmm. And that'll last for about six weeks. And then I don't want raisins to ever look at me for like a year. Yeah. And then I'll get it on on another raisin kick. And I I don't understand it, but it happens. Yeah. Right now I'm in a those few darn raisins. pregnancy cravings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's what it is. I'm pregnant. Well our listeners might not realize this because they can't see me. I I'm a woman. It's true. Yep. A very feminine woman. With uh, a very feminine lack of facial hair. Yeah. I don't have a beard at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, William, what are we going to be discussing this week? So, today, we are going to be talking about the martyrdom of Polycarp. So, we did an episode a while back that was Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians. Philippians. Yeah. His epistle to the Philippians, we did an episode on that. Go back and give it a listen if you haven't. It's a pretty good one. Um, In that, he says that those who deny the resurrection of the flesh are the firstborn of Satan. Um, Yeah. He says some other stuff. It's a great thing. Go and... And read the thing. Read that. It's like six pages. Read it or listen to us read it because we almost read the entire thing. Pretty much. Um, Polycarp of Smyrna lived in Smyrna, which... Well, that's crazy. Uh, I I want to say is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. I think that's what you said in the, the last Polycarp episode. Sounds yeah. right. Sounds right. So it's modern-day Turkey. It's kind of... Uh, you know how Turkey... Is sort of shaped like a drumstick. Yeah. Where the meaty part is facing Europe and mm-hmm. the bone would be facing uh, Asia. Yep. Smyrna is on the tip of the meaty part facing Europe. Okay. okay so then we have the Aegean Sea and then there's Greece. Right yeah. There. So Polycarp lived in Smyrna, which is right there on the tip of Turkey. Um, he was made the Bishop of Smyrna by none other than John the Beloved, the, uh, the evangelist and the apocalypt. Yeah. Um, who we all know and love. He's a pretty big deal. He was one of the 12. So Polycarp is one of the last, what we call the apostolic fathers. So that's the group of people directly after the, the generation that knew Jesus, yeah. right? They, they knew the apostles. And Polycarp knew John. And he was made Bishop of Smyrna by John. So when Polycarp is murdered, this happens around the year 155, 156. Yeah. Um, he's of a dying breed at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very old man in the martyrdom. He tells us that he has been a Christian for 86 years. So that either means that he's been a Christian his whole life, or and he's 86, or he is exceptionally old like well wait a minute in his 90s William. can someone be a christian for their whole life if they don't understand what being a christian is when they're an infant or a toddler 
If they can't, then the road to hell is paved with the skulls of unbaptized infants. I was talking about that with Matt, funnily enough, if you if you guys listened to our first ever guest episode. I was talking with him about that just the night before we recorded, funnily enough. Oh. About uh, the old pedo baptism and potential implications. Interesting stuff. Um, we'll do an episode of that someday. Well, we'll probably be talking about it a good bit when we do the episode with our other guest coming on soon to talk about Lutheranism. Yeah. Because one of the things the Lutherans do is pedo-baptism. Right. So we'll, we'll and, probably discuss uh, it then. Jim's not a fan of that. Now. Is no. He? Not not to my knowledge. My, so, I don't believe he is. Um, I, I don't think he is. So In I, fact, if I recall, one of his big gripes with them when he was... Uh, looking to leave the Lutherans or when his family was looking to leave the Lutherans was, uh, hey, is this pedo-baptism thing good? Yeah, and uh, maybe, maybe not. Not for me to say, I guess. Regardless, um, Polycarp would have been in his late 80s at, at the least. youngest. Yeah. At the youngest, he's in his late 80s at the time of his martyrdom. So that puts, if he dies, traditionally his martyrdom is put somewhere in February around the year 155. We'll say 156 so that I can do mental math easier. Yeah. So he would have been born in the year 70, thereabouts. Yeah. May, plus or minus a couple years. Um, yeah. So Polycarp was a companion to this fellow named Papias. Yeah, Papias was one of the first, uh, I suppose we could call him a historian of the church. Mm -hmm. As the people that knew Jesus start getting old and dying, Papias and his good friend Polycarp go on a journey around the ancient world, meeting the people that knew Jesus and that knew the apostles that are still around, and collected their stories. Yep. Um, they met Philip. He was one of the 12. His daughters, they met them and talked to them about Philip and about his stories about Jesus, and they collected them. Um, unfortunately, Papias's writings have been lost to history for the most part. What a shame. It, yeah, it's truly a, a tragic thing. We have about 10 pages or so of his writings that still exist, and they exist because Eusebius quoted him. Yeah. Uh, so, so thanks, Eusebius. Eusebius was also a Christian historian. Yeah, he's usually called, like, the first, but I think it's more fair to say Papias was the yeah, first. Yeah, Eusebius was very well-written. He wrote a lot. Uh, he was so well-written that we have things that exist through Eusebius that no longer exist themselves, save only for quotes through Eusebius. Like Papias. Like Papias. Um, so we get a lot of stuff from Eusebius where he talks about stuff that we just don't have anymore. Which is he, neat. He also quotes the martyrdom of Polycarp in his church histories. Oh, does he? He does. He quotes it at length um, with a minor difference than the version we'll be looking at today that we'll talk about later when we get to it. <clears throat> so that that's a, a little bit of Polycarp. He was a very faithful man. He served his church well. And um, I think it's fair to say that he was... a. Uh, a holy guy. Yeah. This I'm so confused. This is this is totally off topic. Okay. My wife just texted me. Okay. Out of nowhere, with zero context, she texted me and I quote, "It's fruit." 
I don't know what she's referring to. I don't know what's fruit. But apparently... Uh, we, well, we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit. Uh, she's, she's telling you that it's fruit, singular. That's my I guess. didn't get that notification until just now. <laughs> that or she's in the other room having a stroke. Anyway. That's really funny. I was just so confused. I'm like, what's fruit? What fruit are we talking about? Let's Polycarp. Get to Polycarp here. So I, I've, um, I want to treat this well, and I think the best way to treat it well is to um, read it and take yeah. occasional pit stops to talk about it. We are going to be reading from the book Early Christian Writings. It's a Penguin's classic publication, and it's translated by Maxwell Staniforth. Um, we really need to start like a jar. Every time we talk about this book, we just put money into the jar, and then at the end of the year, we do something with that money. If you want to put money in the jar, I'm not putting money in a jar. Wow. I'm not doing that. Glad to see this, uh, this relationship is really 50-50. I bought donuts. Is that really equivalent to the amount of money I'm putting in for your Maxwell Staniforth call? I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is a, a, a pretty good translation. There are a couple places where I have beef with how he chooses to translate certain words. I will point that beef out, and I will correct him where he's wrong. <laughs> so. <clears throat> All right. It's the martyrdom of Polycarp. From the colony of God's church in Smyrna to the colony of God's church at Philomelium and to all the colonies of the Holy Catholic Church everywhere. Pause. I'm going to put a stop in it right there because immediately there's something I want to point out. The church by the year 150-ish was already referring to itself as the Catholic Church. And keep in mind, this is before the split of the Protestants and the Catholics, right? This is By just, about 1,400 years. This is just the church. And they were referring to themselves in large part as Catholics. So don't get wigged out by that. Don't, don't think, oh, no, they're Roman Catholics. They don't mean Catholic in the same way the Roman Catholics um, do. So Catholic, com it's a compound word mm -hmm. in Greek, and it means um, according to the whole. It means or, universal, right? Or that that all encompassing, but it, it's katha. It's a compound word that means according to everyone. So it's the church, uh, according to all the churches. So all the churches that are really Christian agree on these things, and therefore it's universal in that way. Yeah, the so the Catholic. Catholic Church of Papias' day is not the Roman Catholic Church of today. It's different. Um. So I there's that. think that if we had a time machine mm -hmm. and we brought Eusebius or even perhaps even Polycarp to now and we put them in, we took them to a Roman Catholic church service, yeah. and had them sit through it, and then we brought them to a Protestant church service, like a, a non-denominational church or, or a Baptist church. A Baptist church. And then afterwards we said, which one is right? I would bet money that they're not going to point at the Protestant church. I'd bet money they'd say they're both wrong. Maybe I, I, I they might that, agree more with the Catholic church. I, I think that they would recognize the modern Catholic church as doing something similar but yeah. different. I think that they would be like, "What? what is this? They wouldn't recognize the Protestant church 
as they'd be like, this is not what we do. What what are you guys doing? Yeah, it's very possible. But I just wanted to. Where are the pictures? I just wanted to make that distinction because some people might hear Catholic and then go, ugh, Catholics. <laughs> it's different. And that's fine. <clears throat> Keep going now, William. All mercy, peace, and love to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. I added the amen. <clears throat> in this letter, brothers, we are sending you an account of the martyrs, and in particular of the blessed Polycarp, whose witness set the seal, so to speak, on the persecution and brought it to an end. It was almost as though all the preceding events had been leading up to another divine manifestation of the martyrdom which we read of in the gospel. For Polycarp, just like the Lord, was patiently awaited. Polycarp, just like the Lord, had patiently awaited the hour of his betrayal. In token that we too, taking our pattern from him, might think of others before ourselves. This is surely the sign of a true and steadfast love, when a man is not bent on saving himself alone, but his brethren as well. Mm. But indeed, all the other martyrdoms that God willed to take place, we must be careful to ascribe all things to his governance, were blessed and noble. No one could fail to admire their high-hearted endurance and the love they showed for their master. Some of them were so cut to pieces by the scourges that their very vitals were plainly exposed to view, down to the inmost veins and arteries, and yet they still bore up until even the bystanders were moved to tears of pity for them. Others displayed such heroism that not a cry or a groan escaped from any of them, which seemed a clear proof to us all that in that hour of anguish those martyr heroes of Christ were not present in the body at all. Or better still, that the Lord was standing at their side and holding them in talk. So it was that with all their thoughts absorbed in the grace of Christ, they made light of the cruelties of this world, and at the cost of a single hour, purchased for themselves life everlasting. For them, the fires of their barbarous tormentors had a grateful coolness, for they had ever before their eyes their escape from the quenchless flames of eternity— and looking up, they beheld with inward vision the good things in store for those who persevere. Things which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mortal heart has dreamed of, were revealed by the Lord to those men, who by this time were men no longer, but already angels. It was the same with those who were condemned to the wild beasts. The pains they endured were horrible, for they were forced to lie on beds of spikes and subjected to other varied forms of torture in the hope that these lingering agonies would enable the fiend to extort a recantation from them. In fact, there was no end to the devices the devil employed against them. Thank God, however, all his efforts were unavailing. Germanicus, for example, of true nobility, lent new strength to their failing spirits by his steadfast endurance. He confronted the savage beasts with the utmost gallantry, and when the governor attempted persuasion, urging him to have pity on his own youth, he even used force to drag the animal towards him in his desire for a speedier release from that world of unjust and lawless men. Which is so cool. This one dude, he's like, the governor's like, hey, I'm going to feed you to the lions if you don't uh, quit being a Christian. And Germanicus... Grabs it. Grabs the lion by the mane and drags the animal to him because he's like, I'm not recanting. Let's get this show on the road, baby. Get it over with. Which is so cool. <clears throat> Wish I knew more about Germanicus. 
I think that uh, that's enough. Perhaps. I think that tells us a whole lot about Germanicus. <laughs> that he was a cool guy. It was then that the whole crowd, taken aback by the heroism, which this brood of Christians and their love and fear of God were displaying, broke into yells of down with the infidels. This is a part where I'm going to nitpick. It should be atheists, yes. not infidel. Infidel, in our modern context, has a whole lot of connotations with it. Mm-hmm. It's usually tied up with Islam and stuff. Um, they, These are uh, uh, Roman pagans that are against the Christians. The charge is atheism, not infidelity. Infidel means unfaithful, right? Yeah. Um, fair enough. But the charge is that they are not paying homage to the gods like they're supposed to. As far as the ancient pagans were concerned, they were atheists. They weren't. They believed in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't good enough. They wanted them to believe in Zeus, too. Yeah. Right? So he, at several places, is going to use the word infidel. But it should be atheist. It should be atheist. And from here on out, uh, when I see it, I am going to read it it as atheist because that's what it should be. The end of that, that paragraph, however, you didn't read. Which is that he broke into yells of down with the atheists, go and find Polycarp. Yes. So the, the Germanicus is martyred, and the people are like, geez, that was cool, but by golly, this isn't <laughs> enough. Go get their leader guy. And their leader guy is the Bishop of Smyrna. Is the Bishop of Smyrna, this old wizened dude who knew the guy that knew Jesus named polycarp so they decide they're going to get polycarp yeah and uh get polycarp they do they they go to do that there was one man however quintus by name a phragrian recently arrived from phragria whose courage failed him at the sight of the beasts it was he who had compelled himself and some of the others to surrender themselves voluntarily and after much persuasion, he was induced by the governor to take the oath and offer incense. And that is the reason, brothers, why we do not approve of men offering themselves spontaneously. We are not taught anything of that kind in the gospel. So this is kind of a how to be martyred. Yeah. It's not that you hide, not that you fight, not that you run away, but you don't run to it either. If it happens, it happens. Yeah, so... I was just uh, listening to an episode of a a different podcast uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Word and Table, which I know you're familiar with. Um, If you haven't listened to that podcast, go listen to it. There's a lot of... No, we're better. Stay here. Well, maybe. (laughs) But there's a lot of interesting church history and tradition that is discussed on that podcast. They have people that actually know things, so... Yeah, Father Father Stephen, who is uh, a prominent church leader in the... I believe it's the Anglican. Yeah, he's Anglican. Yeah, he he is one of the one of the hosts like on that show. Bishop of the Midwest or something like that. Yeah, and he's like the 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 leader of theology or something. I don't know his official title, but Regardless. very educated man in the ways of the Anglican Church. Um, that I was, listening. and we don't hold that against him. Yeah, <laughs> C.S. Lewis was Anglican. I don't know. Um, and by golly. 
Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to an episode of that podcast a couple of days ago about martyrdom. That was that was like the whole topic of that episode. Um, and they were discussing what martyrdom is, what it meant back in the day of like, you know, Polycarp around then and what it means today and how it's different. Uh, and how notably the Catholic Church and other like traditions will start sainting martyrs, basically, who really shouldn't be considered martyrs by the original, by the original meaning, because because of the way that we interpret that now. Uh, and one of the things they get into is because of the way that we start interpreting martyrs today, you start getting people who are intentionally going out and seeking martyrdom. I want to go out and die for my faith. Whereas martyrdom should very much be a situation of, it's not that I am attempting to die for my faith, but should someone want to kill me for my faith, that I not back down from my faith in light right. of that. Um, it's different. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. Which I'm working through right now. Yeah, he's, he's got a section where he talks about how the martyr is not a holy suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and we find that here in the martyrdom Polycarp, that in the year 150, whatever, Christians are identifying people that give themselves over intentionally to the government to be martyred. And they're like, uh-uh, that's not how we do this. So, yeah. So go listen the- to Word and Table. Go listen to them talk about martyrdom. It's a good episode. Go read G.K. Chesterton. That too. Um, Okay. But the astonishing Polycarp, when he first heard the report, showed not the least sign of alarm and was all for remaining in the city. However, the majority of us prevailed on him to leave. The majority of us. The guy who's writing this yeah. knows Polycarp. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I, people have beef with this uh, little piece of history. They're like, well, this is like uh, blah, blah, blah. They've, you'll see later that there's some... Uh, miraculous elements to it and they think that it's illegitimate but our author is in on the action he is what historians would refer to as a primary source he's there he sees the stuff yeah right so this isn't someone 50 60 100 years after the fact writing about what happened this is the guy there within a year writing down what happened. Yep. So, just wanted to point that out. The majority of us prevailed on him to leave, and so he made his way quietly to a small country property not far from the city. So his congregation's like, Polycarp, you gotta get out of town. He's like, I really don't want to. And they're like, please. So he finally gives in and goes to a A little little, house outside the city. A little cottage. Yeah. Imagine it's real cozy. Yeah. You know, it's got like some sheep out there grazing. It's a little fireplace. Yeah, fireplace. (laughs) There he spent the time with a few friends, doing nothing else day and night but praying for us all and for churches all over the world, as it was his usual habit to do. While he was thus in his prayers, three days before his arrest, he had a vision in which he saw flames reducing his pillow to ashes, whereupon he turned to his companions and said, I must be going to be burnt alive. Now, I want to point out, Polycarp is now aware that the Roman... The Roman leadership is currently seeking him out to kill him. He knows that they're coming. And he spends his days praying, but he doesn't spend his day praying for himself. He spends it praying for everyone else. 
interesting little little detail there that yeah. I think gives you a pretty good idea of the kind of uh, bishop that Polycarp was. As there was no sign of the search for him being abandoned, he then moved to another farm. The searchers arrived hot on the heels of his departure, and when they failed to find him, they arrested a couple of young houseboys, one of whom confessed under torture, for after all, he could never have escaped deten detection. The circumstance that the traitors were men of his own household, and that the police commissioner, to whom chance had ever... Even. Even given the actual name of Herod, was resolved on bringing him into the arena, manifestly meant that he was to fulfill his destiny by sharing the experience of Christ, and that his betrayer should likewise be doomed to the punishment of Judas. So our author here is drawing comparisons between uh, Polycarp and his martyrdom and Christ and his uh, crucifixion. So the police commissioner happens to be named Herod, yeah, just like Herod, and Polycarp, his location is given away by uh, a servant of his, yeah, a member of his household, much like Judas, who was in every way that mattered, more or less a member of Jesus's household, you know, yeah, they lived and worked and had life together for several years yeah um so he's drawing these comparisons and i think they're fair to make and note that uh part of this started as well with uh quintus the fellow who who offered the incense and and prayer to to caesar um and quintus was also important to the crucifixion story who who, who was he in the the crucifixion story quintus was uh uh, was he the uh, the centurion, if I'm not mistaken, who who took part in making Jesus's arrest happen? Mm, I think you might be right. I think you might be right. Yeah, um, not the same centurion that got on his knees at the foot of the cross and and admitted that Christ is Lord. I don't think. I believe that was a different centurion. Well, th there's a. Uh... That might be what that centurion was doing. Mmm. Perhaps it was truly this man was the son of God. <laughs> Interesting. Um, usually people, I, whenever I hear that part preached about or talked about, it's yeah. always, oh, yeah, the centurion, he converts. But I'm not so sure that that's how we're supposed to read that. That'll be a good discussion for another day. I, I think the that's centurion might have been... Truly, this one was... But anyway, yeah, just anyway. just interesting that Quintus, yeah. who, if I am not mistaken, is also important to the crucifixion story, is also... There's a parallel here with, with this guy, Quintus, who fails to martyr and and gives in. Interesting. Yes. All right. Tip staffs and mounted policemen left about supper time on the Friday, taking the houseboy with them. The men had been issued with the regulation weapons, just as if it were a brigand they were tracking down. Excuse me. <clears throat> so they're going out armed to the teeth like they're going after um, bandits instead of yeah. like they're going after a 90-year-old man. They closed in on Polycarp late at night and found him in bed in an attic. Even then, he could have made his escape to another place, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. 
As soon as he heard them arrive, he went down and chatted with them. And everyone there was struck by his age and his calmness, and surprised that the arrest of such an old man could be so urgent. In spite of the lateness of the hour, he at once ordered them to be given all the food and drink they wanted, and then asked if he might be allowed an hour to pray undisturbed. When they consented, he got to his feet and prayed, so full of the grace of God, that two whole hours went by before he could bring himself to be silent again. All who heard him were struck with awe, and many of them began to regret this expedition against a man so old and saintly. Mm. They show up to drag him to go get killed, and he says, You guys hungry? Let me get you some water. Hold on. Wine? Some food. You want some wine? I think I have some Kool-Aid. I'll get you some Kool-Aid. <laughs> Got some lamb chops back there. Yeah, he he, he gives them uh, he gives them whatever food and drink they'd like, and uh, and then he, he asks to pray for one hour, and they let him pray for two, and then they regret going on this expedition. I I might I might tear up as we go mm-hmm. along here. I'm gonna try not to cry. You it's... you want me to read a little bit? <laughs> you can if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll keep going here. At length, when he had remembered everyone whom chance had ever brought him into contact with, small and great, known and unknown, as well as the entire worldwide Catholic Church, he brought his prayers to an end. By then, it was time to leave, so they mounted him on an ass and took him to the city. (laughs) Mounted him on what? (laughs) What was that? On an ass, William. Old-timey speak for donkey. Yes. You know who else rode a donkey? Who? Jesus. Mmm. And that one dude who's, whose ass started talking to him? Balaam. Yeah, Balaam. And also Abraham that time, but specifically Jesus, because our author here wants us to see parallels between Polycarp yes. and Jesus. So we're going to point to Jesus specifically. Yeah. Yeah. That day was a greater Sabbath. And Herod, the police commissioner, accompanied by his father, Nicetus, 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 came out to meet him. They took him into their carriage, sat down beside him, and addressed him persuasively. Come now, they said. Where is the harm in just saying, Caesar is Lord, and offering the incense, and so forth, when it will save your life? At first, he made no reply. But when they kept on at, kept on at him, he said no. I am not going to take your advice. Then, after their effort at persuasion had failed, they took to uttering threats, and they turned him out of the carriage so impatiently that he barked his shins as he was getting down. Some translations say that he, like, twisted his ankle or, Or like, broke his his, uh, leg. Uh, The Greek is a little bit ambiguous. Um, He he injured his leg. He hurt his leg. Without even turning his head, however... As if nothing had happened, he stumped nimbly away at a brisk pace as they led him towards the circus. Inside the circus itself, there was now such an uproar going on that nobody could make himself heard. So, he's not going to say that Caesar is Lord and offer incense, and they start getting angry and impatient with him, and they throw him out of the carriage. And he hurts his leg. But... Polycarp, being the baller he is, he just walks it off, baby. He he stumps it off. He yeah, yeah, and uh, 
They take him to the circus, where uh, apparently the crowd is now real riled up because Polycarp's here. Yeah, it's a big deal. As Polycarp stepped into the arena, there came a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one caught sight of the speaker, but those of our friends who were there heard the voice. Finally, he was brought forward for examination, and when the news spread round that it was Polycarp who had been captured, a defeated clamor broke out. A def- deafening clamor broke out, sorry. He was brought before the governor, who asked if this was the man, and when Polycarp admitted it, tried to persuade him to recant. Have some respect for your years, he said, adding the rest of the usual exhortations. Swear an oath by the luck of Caesar. Own yourself in the wrong and say, down with the atheists. Polycarp's brow darkened as he threw a look around the turbulent crowd of heathens in the circus, and then, indicating them with a sweep of his hand, he said with a growl and a glance to heaven, down with the atheists. Amen, amen. Mm. This is one of the most metal moments in early church history, I think. This is so cool. It's up there. It's so cool. (laughs) Away with the atheists. Down with the atheists. And he goes, yeah, okay. And then gesturing to the whole crowd. Down with the atheists. Now, let's talk about that that opening there for a minute. That voice coming down from heaven saying, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Right after they make a note about how the uproar was so loud that Uh no one can hear each other. Yeah, so what's that about? Is Is this the voice of the Lord, William? Yeah. Now. Sure, why not? And absolutely, yeah. but this, this to me is interesting because something we see after the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament is towards the end of the New Testament there, we get the prophets who start speaking for God. God speaks through the prophets. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus speaks for God because he is God, mm-hmm. right? And following that, we don't really see mention of God speaking down directly to us humans anymore. Yeah, we do. There's there's a couple. It, it happens all the time in the New Testament. There's a couple. So it happens with, well, I mean, if we think about, a lot of the New Testament is epistles. Yeah. Right? We don't get a whole lot of narrative in yeah. the New Testament. But the narratives that we do have in Acts, it happens several times in Acts. Yeah. Um, it happens, you could argue that all of that stuff at the end with... Revelation and John is kind of that. Eh, um, yeah, I guess. If you keep your finger on the history of the church and trace it through, people have these kinds of experiences where God, big booming voice kind of thing, mm-hmm. happens consistently throughout church history. See, but it's um, interesting because we don't really see that today. How how many do? stories do you see in modern day of of that happening because you're just hanging out with the wrong kinds of christians maybe you gotta go talk to some pentecostals i'm gonna be honest the amount of stories that i hear about that today by people alive today or even in the last you know several hundred years i could probably count them on one hand you just don't hear about it anymore um i i think that I i think you need to go talk to some pentecostals You'll hear you'll hear some stories, maybe. Um, but I don't. It's the, the Catholics have also consistently had these things happening, mm. which is interesting. Um, 
So it, it it's not that it doesn't happen or has stopped happening or has become more rarer. Mm-hmm. It, it's just um, you coming from a, a kind of non-denom Baptisty yeah. background and then Baptisty, um, you don't get a whole lot of that in that tradition. Yeah, and maybe maybe it is just uh, my personal experience and not not having much with that. But yeah, bro, you got to talk to some. From my perspective, I don't really hear about that a lot. It happens. It happens. We'll have to t- we'll have to look into that. Do a do an episode on that. Talk about some of that. Title it the voice of God. Mm. Anyway, so I just found that interesting. Yeah. Though, that uh, um, I I think that it's interesting as we go through the rest of this story. Um, Polycarp does what he is told, and he plays the man. Yeah. He, he does not waver. In the most chauvinistic, sexist terms, he goes through the rest of this experience manly. Yeah. He does it manly. Um, and I wonder how much of that has to do with that voice. If he yeah. didn't get that extra little bit of encouragement, would Polycarp have broken? Mm. I don't think he would have. Um, I think that with the little bit of history that we have about Polycarp, I think it's clear that he would have gone stalwartly to the pyre either way. And I think that voice that says, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man, I think that's for us and mm. not for him. I don't think he needed it. Interesting. You want to you wanna keep reading? Yeah. yeah. The governor, however, still went on pressing him. Take the oath and I will let you go, he told him. Revile your Christ. Polycarp's reply was, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Persisting in his attempts, the governor then said again, Swear by the luck of Caesar. He answered, If you still think I am going to swear by Caesar's luck and still pretend not to know what I am, let me tell you plainly now. I am a Christian. And if you want to know the meaning of Christianity, you have only to name a day and give me a hearing. To this, the governor's reply was, Try your arguments on the crowd over yonder. But Polycarp said, It is you whom I am... Who... It is you whom I thought it might be worth discussing it with, because we have been taught to pay all proper respect to powers and authorities of God's appointment, so long as it does not compromise us. To defend myself to these people would only be a waste of time. Mm. The governor then said, I have wild beasts here. Unless you change your mind, I shall have you thrown to them. Why then call them up, said Polycarp. For it is out of the question for us to exchange a good way of thinking for a bad one. It would be a very credible thing, though, to change over from the wrong to the right. The other said again, If you do not recant, I will have you burnt to death, since you think so lightly of wild beasts. Polycarp rejoined, The fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long. After a while it goes out. But what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment in everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly. Why do you go on wasting time? 
bring out whatever you have in mind too. So we get a lot more Christ-like comparisons here in the way that he treats this situation. And that in, in the same way that Pontius Pilate and the Romans who crucified Jesus gave him every opportunity to change his mind. They gave him a lot of outs. It was, admit you're not the Lord. Admit you are not the mm-hmm. Christ, and we will let you go. Yeah. Admit you are not the king of Jews, and we will let you go. And each time he adamantly refused, and then they killed him. And here we see Polycarp. He's giving Polycarp so many chances between the guards on the way there, and now the governor giving him, what, three or four separate opportunities to recant. Yeah. and he's like... And he won't. And not only will he not do it, he's like, look, man, you're wasting your breath. If you're going to burn me, let's get it. Let's get this. If you're going to feed me to the animals, let let's, them loose. Let's do it. Let's go. Do it. But even do it. more interesting. Just do it. He is attempting to witness to the governor. Yeah. And say, give me a day. Uh, give me a day that I might have an audience with you. And I'll tell you why you're wrong. And one of the accusations against Christians at this time is that they are a danger to the government. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So the fact that we have this little bit where Polycarp is like, look, I'm not going to talk to them. I don't owe them anything, but you're the guy in charge. And I'm more than willing to give you all due respect unless it compromises me. Yeah. And so that there's this little ap- apologetic thing going on there that's yeah. interesting. And it's it's even kind of reminiscent of how even on the cross Christ was Christ was uh, ministering to the to the thieves who were crucified with him despite the fact that he was being crucified and hanging on the cross dying and uh, the weight of the sins of all of humanity was upon his shoulders he still took the time to comfort the the thief who who uh what's the word I'm looking for the penitent thief yes the penitent thief who who according to uh I think it's the Gospel of Nicodemus, mm-hmm. which is not canonical. It no. has never been canonical. and Shouldn't tr- be canonical. Shouldn't be canonical. He's identified as being named Dismas. Yes. So the Catholic Uncharted Church... Uncharted 4 tells us that, too. Yes. Uh, the, the Catholic Church w- will sometimes refer to him as St. Dismas. Yes, he was sainted by the Catholic Church. Um, well, he was sainted by Christ. Oh. Fair enough. Um, but it, it's kind of this comparison where Christ on the cross was was in his own way witnessing to Dismas, the penitent thief, on the cross. And here we have Polycarp right before his martyrdom yeah. attempting to witness to the governor. It, th- so many comparisons. You could write a, a doctoral thesis on that. Maybe you should. You think you'll go for your doctorate? Uh, let's focus on bachelor's first. <laughs> um, and all the time he was saying this and much else besides. He was overflowing with courage and joy, and his whole countenance was beaming with grace. It was not only that he himself was anything but pro- prostrated with dismay at the threats which were uttered. It was the governor who, on his part, found himself now completely at a loss. 
What he did next was to send his crier to give out three times from the center of the arena. Polycarp has admitted to being a Christian. At the crier's words, the whole audience, the heathens and the Jewish residents of Smyrna alike, broke into loud yells of ungovernable fury. That teacher of Asia, that father figure of the Christians, that destroyer of our gods who is teaching whole multitudes to abstain from sacrificing to them or worshiping them, interspersed with shouts of this kind, there were loud demands for the Asiarch Philip to let loose a lion to Polycarp. That's the, uh, the beast, beast master. master. His name was Philip. However, he Which... told them that the rules would not allow him to do this since he had already declared the beast fighting closed. Whereupon they decided to set up a unanimous outcry that he should have Polycarp burnt alive. Thus was ensured the fulfillment of the vision he had of his pillow when he saw it catching fire during his prayers and turned to his loyal friends with prophetic words, I must be going to be burnt alive. Just like to point out, Philip, yet another biblical name. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure... If we can draw a line from uh, Philip the Beastmaster to yeah. the uh, Apostle. It's interesting. It is interesting. There's it's one of those things that's like, hmm. So much of that. Um, yeah. Let's, let's keep going here. It was all done in less time than it takes to tell. In a moment, the crowd had collected sticks and kindling from their workshops and baths. The Jews, as usual, being well to the fore with their help. When the pile was ready, he took off his outer garment, undid his girdle, and even tried to unfasten his shoes, though he had never been accustomed to do this before, since the faithful used to vie with one another in their eagerness to touch his bare skin. Such universal veneration had the saintliness of his life earned for him. Even before his martyrdom, the irons with which the pyre was equipped were fastened round him. But when they proposed to nail him as well, he said... Let me be. He who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake without you making sure of it with nails. Man, that's metal. There are two things I'd like to point out. When is Polycarp arrested? Late Friday night. Yeah. They take him to the circus. It's now Saturday morning. Yes. Which is the Sabbath. It happens to be on a greater Sabbath. Mm. And they want to nail him to the stake. um, When they determine that they're going to burn him alive, our author makes a note that the Jews, as usual, were Mm -hmm. at the fore with their help. On a greater Sabbath, the Jewish people of Smyrna are gathering sticks and twigs and logs and piling them up for a pyre to burn Polycarp. And then they want to nail him to the pyre. Yep. Not the Jews. Obviously. Not the Jews, but... But then the, they're going to nail him to the pyre, and he says, you don't have to do that. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> so cool. So cool. I'd also... Uh, <laughs> I like your, your choice of translation with the word sticks there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Staniforth <laughs> uses an archaic term that means a bundle of sticks. The British use the term to refer to cigarettes. I chose to not use the term at all. It's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah, so I... And let me just throw this out there. I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just pointing out what the author says happened. Yeah. The Jewish people were disparaging their own holy day, 
to get Polycarp burned faster. If yeah. they didn't help, he was going to be burned at the pyre anyway. But they did. But they they helped. So they left out the nailing and tied him instead. Bound like that with his hands behind him, he was like a noble ram taken out of some great flock for sacrifice. A goodly burnt offering already for God. Then he cast his eyes up to heaven. And he said, O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have been given knowledge of thyself, thou art the God of angels and powers, of the whole creation and of all the generations of the righteous who live in thy sight. I bless thee for granting me this day and hour that I may be numbered amongst the martyrs, to share the cup of thine anointed and to rise again unto life everlasting, both in body and soul, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them this day in thy presence, a sacrifice rich and acceptable, even as thou didst appoint and foreshow, and dost now bring it to pass. For thou art the God of truth, and in thee is no falsehood. For this and for all else besides, I praise thee. I bless thee, I glorify thee, through our eternal high priest in heaven, thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory to thee and the Holy Ghost, now and for all ages to come. Amen. Just pointing out, people like the godless John Shelby Spong <laughs> will say that the Trinity was not a thing until the 4th century. And I would tell John Shelby Spong to read Polycarp's martyrdom because here, in Polycarp's last words, he confesses Trinity. Mm. Um, but John Shelby Spong is dead. Yeah. God rest his soul. Something like that. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's keep going here. As the amen soared up and the prayer ended, the men at the fire set their lights to it and a great sheet of flame blazed out. And then we who were privileged to witness it saw a wondrous sight and we have been spared to tell it to the rest of you. The fire took up the shape of a hollow chamber like a ship's sail with this wind when the wind fills it and formed a wall round about the martyr's figure. And there was he in the center of it, not like a human being in flames, but like a loaf baking in the oven or like a gold or silver ingot being refined in the furnace. And we became aware of a delicious fragrance, like the odor of incense or other precious gums. Finally, when they realized that his body could not be destroyed by fire, the ruffians ordered one of the dagger men to go up and stab him with his weapon. Another Christ parallel. Yeah. As he did so, there flew out a dove, together with such a copious rush of blood that the flames were extinguished. And this filled all the spectators with awe to see the greatness of the difference that separates unbelievers from the elect of God. Of these last and wondrous martyrs, Polycarp was most surely one, bishop of the Catholic Church at Smyrna, and a teacher in our own day who combined both apostle and prophet in his own person. For indeed, every word that ever fell from his lips either has had or will have its fulfillment. Now, so, please. Let's, I, I'm sure you're going to uh, point at something that... Let's, there's a few things I want to point at. So, they tie him to the stake. Yep. He prays. 
Yeah. And then they light fire to his pyre. Yep. There is a holy wall placed around him so the fire will not touch his body. Evidently, yeah. The fire can't destroy his body. Yep. And so they say, Dagger Man, go stab him. Yep. First of all, how terrified must that dude have been? Imagine being the guy who they say, that fire won't kill him. Go stab him. <laughs> he must have been scared crapless, and dude. A- as he does it, he's like, please work, please work, please yeah. work, please work. And so he pulls his dagger out. And out of his wound flies a dove. Which, that's weird. And then a fountain of blood comes out of his wound so great that it extinguishes the fire. Now, um, people who are inclined towards not miraculous thinking Mm -hmm. have problems with this. And they'll As say, I'm sure you can imagine. That didn't actually happen. Yeah. So what they'll... The Greek word for left and the Greek word for dove are a difference of like one or two letters. They're spelled very, very similar. Oh, okay. So the theory is that it said that he was stabbed and out of his left came such a copious rush of blood. Okay. Okay. And that over time, it, there was a smudge somewhere, and it became, out flew a dove, and then a copious rush of blood. Mm. Right? Now, Eusebius of Caesarea, in his church histories, quotes the martyrdom of Polycarp at length. And notably, in Eusebius of Caesarea's quotation of Polycarp, he does not mention the dove. Okay? Huh. Now, my skeptical friends, let's put a pin in the dove thing, because regardless of what happens, with, if it's a dove or out of his left side, it doesn't matter, because the fire does not affect Polycarp's body. And it doesn't matter if there's a dove or not, because in addition to the dove is a fire hose of blood that puts out a bonfire. That's not a thing that happens with a normal stab wound. No. Even if we can explain away the miraculous dove part, the rest of what's going on in his martyrdom is still way out there. So. But let's put a pin in that. Okay. How out there is it, realistically? Well, I don't think it's out there at all because uh, I'm... Uh... You've made this this <laughs> argument to me before, which is when your entire belief, your religion is based on the idea of a guy who claims to be the son of God, which, first of all, hold up, that's a lot to take in, but then... And the son of a virgin. Okay. And then dies. And then three days later decides he's not dead anymore? And I'll do you one better. He says he's going to do it before he does. If that's what your entire faith is based on, how out there is a dude stab wound extinguishing a fire? Not. By comparison. It's not. Not. Yeah, it's out there. I'm cool with it. But by comparison, I think one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. um, I want to be clear. Eusebius does not quote the entirety of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Okay. Yeah. So 
even though he quotes it at length, the fact that he does not mention the dove doesn't necessarily mean that um, it wasn't there. Because he doesn't say he was stabbed in the left side either. Yeah. He just says he was stabbed and a whole bunch of blood came out. So he, yeah. that little clause there about the dove or his left side doesn't exist in Eusebius's quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so Eusebius may have just made a mistake. Yeah. Accidentally so, left off a word on the page and was like, dang it, I, I don't have an eraser. I don't know if this is the literal account of what happened or if it is a glorified story to get the point of what happened across. I can't say because I wasn't there, but I will say there are wackier, wilder, harder to believe stories in Holy Scripture that we as Christians have no issue believing. So if this is true and I get to heaven and find out that's what happened, I take no issue with that. I would take a nine millimeter bullet for it having happened the way described. I've got one in the other room. I can arrange that. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, that I, I I'd take a bullet for it. I'm I'm. I don't I'm know if I'd take a bullet for it. I'd take like an airsoft for it. I, you um, know? I I'd take a punch to the gut for it. I I can't imagine a scenario where it's like affirm the Polycarp's martyrdom happened as described, or I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot you. I'm gonna shoot you if you do, and if you don't, not, well, geez, if I'm, with a gun in front of me, I might actually be like, you know. That left side theory yeah. sounded pretty good right now. <laughs> um, well, but I, I think uh, I'm convinced. I think well, it happened as described. Okay. There is 1.3 pages left of the document. You're just going to read through it? I'm just going to read through it. We'll let it speak for itself. And then we'll close And out. then we'll close. All right. All right. But the jealous and envious evil one who always opposes the family of the righteous and had noticed the sublimity of his martyrdom and the unspotted record of his life since its earliest days, now saw him in the act of having a crown of immortality set upon his head and bearing off a prize which none could dispute. He therefore proceeded to do his best to arrange that at least we should not get possession of his mortal remains, although numbers of us were anxious to do this and to claim our share in the hallowed relics. Accordingly, he put it into the head of Nicetus, the father of Herod and brother of Alc, to make an application to the governor not to release the body, in case, he said, they should forsake the crucified and take to worshipping this fellow instead. This was said under the strong pressure from the Jews, who had been observing us, as we were about to draw it out of the fire. Little do they know that it could never be possible for us to abandon the Christ who died for the salvation of every soul that is to be saved in all the world, the sinless one dying for sinners, or to worship any other. It is to him, as the Son of God, that we give our adoration, while to the martyrs, as disciples and imitators of the Lord, we give the love that they have earned by their matchless devotion to their King and Teacher. Pray God we too may come to share their company and their discipleship. However, when the centurion saw that the Jews were spoiling for a quarrel, he had the body fetched out publicly, as is their usage, and burnt. And I just want to throw this out there. He had Polycarp's body, the guy that fire wouldn't kill, taken to be burnt. How would you like having that job? Yeah. That's worse than the dagger guy. You got to burn the body that wouldn't burn. And just, oh, no. Is this going to work? Please work. Please, please work. work. Please work. Please work. Uh, <clears throat> So after all, we did gather up his bones, 
more precious to us than jewels and finer than pure gold, and we laid them to rest in a spot suitable for the purpose. There we shall assemble as occasion allows, and with glad rejoicings and with the Lord's permission, we shall celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. It will serve both as a commemoration of all who have triumphed before and as a training and a preparation for any whose crown may still be to come. Such, then, is the record of Polycarp the Blessed, including those from Philadelphia. He was the twelfth to meet a martyr's death in Smyrna. Though he is the only one to be singled out for universal remembrance and to be talked of everywhere, even in heathen circles. Not only was he a famous doctor, he was a martyr without a peer, and one whose martyrdom all aspire to imitate. So fully does it accord with the gospel of Christ. His steadfastness proved more than a match for the governor's injustice, and won him his immortal crown. Now in the fullness of joy among the apostles and all the hosts of heaven, he gives glory to the Almighty God and Father and utters the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of our souls, the Master of our bodies, and the Shepherd of the Catholic Church the wide world over. We know that you asked us for a more exhaustive account of the events than this, but we have had this brief summary made by our brothers Marcion for you to be going on with. When you have finished reading it, Send the letter to your brethren further away for them to, to glorify the Lord who singles out his chosen saints from among the numbers of his bondsmen. And now to him whose plenteous grace is able to bring us all into his heavenly kingdom through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, be all glory, honor, might, and majesty forever and ever. Our greetings to all the people of God, our companions here, Send their greetings, and so with all his family does your scribe, Averitus. Amen. And then there's a postscript. There is a postscript. There's a postscript. Um, and I, I'm just throwing this out there. As a historical document, if we want to know what Christianity is like and what it was like in its earlier days— this tells us that around the year 150-something, people were venerating the relics of martyrs. Yeah. They, they were collecting teeth and knuckle bones of Christians who had been killed for their faith, and those were special. Yeah. Um, so people like Luther later on critique that practice, but I don't know if it's a fair critique— it seems to be a very early practice in the church. Yeah. So that's something to think about. Now, here's the postscript. It was the second day of the first fortnight of Xanthicus, seven days before the Chelids of March, when our blessed Polycarp died his martyr's death, two hours after midday on the greater Sabbath. The official responsible for his arrest was Herod, the high priest was Philip of Trellis, and the proconsul was Satius Quadratus. But the ruling monarch was Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. To him be ascribed all glory, honor, majesty, and an eternal throne from generation to generation. Amen. And now, brethren, we bid you farewell. Order your lives by the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with whom be glory to God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, for the salvation of his holy elect, even as did Polycarp the Blessed in his martyrdom. May it be our lot to be found following in his footsteps in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, so yet again there, we see trinitarian confession happening right and so earlier i mentioned that uh it happened this happened on like february 7th mm -hmm. i think it's february 18th yeah 
156. This is how we're able to figure that out. Yeah. Because he names all these people in the month and the day. Yeah. So we get a really good idea of when this happened. Um, and then one more paragraph. Because we have the copyist note at the end. <laughs> we do. The above account has been transcribed by Gaius from the papers of his contemporary, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp. I, Socrates, have now made this copy here in Corinth from Gaius's manuscripts. Grace be with you all. And then we have a second copyist note. I, Peonius, have made a fresh transcript of those earlier writings. I found them after Polycarp the Blessed revealed their whereabouts in a vision, as I will explain hereafter. Time had reduced them almost to tatters, but I gathered them carefully together in the hope that the Lord Jesus Christ may likewise gather myself amongst his elect into his heavenly kingdom. To him with the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hey, so, what do you know? More Trinitarian confession. This, uh, this manuscript had been handed down faithfully for a couple generations, and then it would have been lost if this one guy, Peonius, mm -hmm didn't have a weird vision of Polycarp's ghost question mark? Supposedly. Show up and say, hey, go down to the library. It's on the third shelf on the bottom. It's been a water main break, and it's a, a little wet, so be very careful with it. Take it and recopy it out. Yeah. And then he did. And now we have it today. And now we have it today because this guy had a weird vision. Like, what's up with that? But we're all out of time, so we can't talk about visions. Not today. Not today. Maybe we'll talk about this some other day. Um, anyway, that's the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's super metal. That was the whole um, thing. That was the whole thing. Every word. So you don't have to read it, but I encourage you to um, because it's good. Uh, so thank you for listening. Um, hopefully this was good for you. And uh, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please send us an email at theologyish at gmail.com and we will respond to you. And, uh, yeah. We will see you next week with another episode. Thanks what, for listening. What's our episode going to be about? That's going to be an interesting one. Next week, we're going to touch on some outlooks on, on the church and the faith from an outsider's perspective and dig into that a little bit. Should be fun. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.